Hello, true believers. You are listening to, or will at least soon be listening to, Cinema Excelsior. Uh, before this week's episode begins, a brief public service announcement. First of all, this is this week's episode. We are going to a weekly schedule and debuting a new format, starting with this very special episode. We had sort of a come-to-Jesus moment after we spent three hours discussing The Punisher and decided that it might make more sense if we would divide up our long, detailed conversations into more easily digestible chunks of insight. Uh, Chunks of Insight, incidentally, is going to be a new breakfast cereal that we debut as a tie-in to Cinema Excelsior. But I digress. Uh, This week, we begin our conversation of Spider-Man 2, the Sam Raimi film from 2004. Uh, We are going to run through sort of the first roughly quarter of the conversation in this episode. And our roundtable features Nick Bester, uh, Stephen Claypool, that's me. Derek Long, Patrick Regan, and Daniel Watson-Jones. So we hope you enjoy, and yeah, go forth, true believers! Alright, let's get this kicked off. Welcome, listeners! And there's the extent of my piss-poor Stan Lee impression for wow. today. Yeah. Welcome, listeners! You do it, dude. Welcome, listeners! Okay, uh, give me more. I, I, what what else should I say? <laughs> Welcome to Cinema the Excelsior. Yeah, title of the show. Welcome to. God, I've got a cold. This is all. Let, let me. Welcome to Cinema right. Excelsior. Patrick, you wanna you wanna lead it up? <clears throat> Welcome, true believers, to Cinema Excelsior. You sound like a vaude villain. <laughs> That's basically what he sounds. Go like. smoke a hundred cigarettes and come back. Yeah. Cinema right. Excelsior. Oh. Well, I guess I'll have to try to. Cinema Excelsior. Nailed <laughs> <laughs> it. Nick literally. Yeah. Are you going to try? Nailed it. Could we get Louis Armstrong out of here? <laughs> yeah. I see trees of green. When All you right. walk through the garden, <laughs> you got to watch your back. This is Patrick, rapid. Patrick, you, you need you need to stop trying to bring focus to this endeavor. This is true. It's not going to work. Yep. That's, this is why we're cutting episodes up. All right, let's All talk right. about yes. that movie. So, welcome to Cinema Excelsior, the show where we uh, criticize, critique, uh, other words that begin with crit, uh, the films of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Your esteemed panel for the day. Uh, moving from left to right. First, we have <laughs> Daniel Watson Jones. Say hi, Dooge. Hi, Dooge. Hey, you're so clever. Mr. Watson Jones tonight will be playing the part of memorable Spider Man villain Fusion. Okay. Fusion, <laughs> as you all know, is two twins born with dwarfism, oh. one of whom was a scientist, one of whom was a janitor. Who were fused together by radiation oh and became God. a villain for some reason. And the basis of the, the film Goodwill Hunting? Yes. That's correct. <laughs> Fusion. Is that spelled weirdly in any way? Are there any Z's nope. in there? Nope, just lazy old fusion. Well wow. some ways that's less lazy than uh, spelling it with weird Z's. Yeah. Well, talk about lazy. 
Here, here's one. Uh, to do just digital right, we have Derek Long. Say hi, Derek. Hello, listeners. Derek Long tonight will be playing the part of Stegron. Stegron was Dr. Kurt Connor's please, assistant. Please tell me he's part Stegosaurus. I remember this guy. He is Dr. Kurt Connor's assistant who injected himself with Connor's lizard formula, expecting different results, but got the same results. Wow. That's what you get when you pay teaching assistants shit. <laughs> so, uh, oh, so bitter laughter. Bitter. So he is part Stegosaurus. That's yes, what yes, I'm hearing? Yes. Okay. Yes. Good. All right. <laughs> to his digital right, we have Nick Bester. All right, yes, hi. Hello, children. Nick is playing the part of the Tri-Sentinel, who is, wait what? for it, wow. three sentinels oh, that combine into one and hate Spider-Man for some reason. It has to do with Loki. It's complicated. To his digital right, we have Patrick Regan. Patrick will be playing the part of the Freak tonight. The Freak is a drug addict who accidentally injected himself with a serum that transformed him into a skinless monster <laughs> after mistaking it for crystal meth. I just Haven't we all made that mistake? For knowing two out of four of those bad guys. You'll, you'll know the fifth one. Um, I'm Stephen Claypool, and I'm Mr. Negative, because I'm really down on this film. Ah, we've uh, we've scraped the bottom of the rogue's barrel tonight, which is... Oh, we've pro- got another movie left to uh, do for Spider-Man, so oh, that'll yeah. be uh, We oh. have three more Spider-Mans. Oh, that's true. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah, at some point we will eventually get to, yeah, the, uh, <laughs> the amazing yeah. ones. Yes. We may yeah. have four by the time we get to some of those. Mm-hmm. That's true. The rate that they're trying to crank them out, we may have eight. Yes, so tonight's film, we are talking about Spider-Man 2, uh, released in 2004, directed by Sam Raimi, starring Tobey Maguire, Kirsten Dunst, James Franco, Alfred Molina, and others. Uh, In light of the previous episode's experiment in improv theater, I have decided to write a short summary. (laughs) Oh, you're no fun. Today's episode. God. Uh, it's it's got a little bit of a slam poetry feel at times though, so I'll uh, I'll do I'll do my best. I wish I had some bongos right now. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right. So the our summary of Spider-Man Two. So two years later, Peter Parker, Spider-Man, shitty pizza delivery boy, fired. In debt to his other boss's secretary. Girl he loves, Mary Jane, loves him. But their love cannot be. Best friend Harry wants to kill Spider-Man for killing his father. Not knowing he's his best friend. Or that he didn't kill his father. Aunt May can't pay her bills. We'll lose her house. Peter, terrible student. Can't, can't, can't pay a Russian character actor. Come landlord. He is blitheringly incompetent in all aspects. Harry introduces <laughs> Peter to Otto Octavius, great scientist, has a lovely wife, strong father figure, teaches Peter important lessons about romance. Peter immediately pisses the lessons away by missing Mary Jane's piss-poor performance in The Importance of Being Earnest, the sixth play in Jim Varney's Earnest series. <laughs> Everything is terrible. 
A hello to arms. Great scientist and strong father figure deliberately fuses self to bizarre harness of mechanical limbs that he programmed to be evil. But don't worry, he has an inhibitor chip. Shockingly, his attempt to create a miniature son goes horribly wrong. His wife is killed and, oh no, his inhibitor chip is gone. It's the arms world now. Now he's a monster who the media callously names Dr. Octopus. In retaliation for Peter missing her play, Mary Jane announces an engagement to a hunky astronaut. Peter's frustration manifests in the loss of his spider powers, a stirring metaphor for today's hypersexual world. After a conversation with his dead uncle in a heavenly Oldsmobile, Peter abandons his Spider-Man identity and grooves to the smooth sounds of Burt Bacharach. Also, he tells his aunt that he basically killed his uncle. But don't worry, all is soon forgiven. He's cool with it. Yep. Doc Ock goes to Harry to get the precious MacGuffin medal that he needs for his MacGuffin machine that makes sons. Harry asks for Spider-Man as a payment. Ock kidnaps Mary Jane. Peter is all focused again, and his powers come back. He fights on New York's famous and historic elevated train. Spider-Man loses his mask... (laughs) Stops the runaway train and is briefly Jesus. But all is for naught. Hawk gets him and brings him to Harry in exchange for the MacGuffin. Gasp! Spider-Man is Peter Parker and Harry is shocked. Shocked, he lets Peter go. Having failed to make a small son, Otto decides to make a bigger son. Predictably, this does not go well. Spider-Man appears. Fight! Massive jolt of electricity. Father figure overcomes mechanical arms in his brain. Redemptive sacrifice. The sun drowns in the Hudson River. Mary Jane knows Peter is Spider-Man. All is well, except for the fact that there is now a sun at the bottom of the Hudson River, and everyone is unhappy. Oh, and Willem Dafoe appears in a mirror to shout, Avenge me. Mary Jane leaves her great guy fiancé at the altar to be with the mopey kid who risks his life recklessly every day. There is an an uncomfortable amount of kissing, and then our hero jumps out a window and leads a fleet of helicopters into action. The end. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, yeah, groovy, man. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, can we we refer to Mary Jane's fiancé as astronaut Mike Nelson? (laughs) <laughs> no, you mean Mike Dexter? Is it Mike Dexter or Mike Nelson? Is it Mike? I'm pretty Dexter? sure it's, it's Mike Dexter from Thirty Rock. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah Mike Nelson is uh, um, can, was an I'm, actual uh, astronaut who uh, served on the satellite of love. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm mixing my comics, uh, astronaut yeah. references. Yeah. Astronaut Mike. He's Dexter. also Elijah from the Vampire Diaries and the originals. And in the comics, Patrick, what is he? Oh, werewolf. He's a werewolf. Yeah. Oh my god. Wow. Well, well, Jay Jonah Jameson's son a is werewolf? a werewolf. Well, be more specific. Be more specific. He's a man wolf. You're correct. He's a man wolf. I think that might be less specific because I know what a werewolf is. I don't <laughs> well, know what a man wolf is. Base. So you know how most werewolves are like they're bitten by a werewolf, then turn into a werewolf under a full moon. Yeah. Yes. The man wolf is basically bitten by the moon. Okay. So he's an astronaut that went to the moon, and the moon bit him, and now he's a wolf, more or less. That's a, that's, yeah, is he J, is he J. Jonas Jameson's son? Yeah, 
But is his name J. Jonah Jameson Jr.? John not, Jameson. But his middle name could be Jonah. Because if not, J. Jonah Jameson when, missed when an incredible opportunity. Does he turn into a wolf man, or does he turn into a wolf? Man, a wolf man with okay. with like a, a with like a flat top. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Does it have a fade? I don't. <laughs> a little remember. bit. Yeah. I, I'm pretty. I'm pretty sure it's flat. It's like flat top on the top, and then it mullets. Okay. Because okay. I was imagining like Guile's hair from Street Fighter. Uh, but yeah, but too, but add a mullet. Add a mullet. Yeah. Which would make his hair more realistic. Anyway. Okay. <laughs> uh. Did not expect that. Did not expect that he was a moon-bitten werewolf. But sure, okay. Did never see it coming, would you? And the irony, he, he's most famous for playing a vampire. There you go. The ironing is delicious. Yes. Mm. Did you just say the ironing? Might have. He did. <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh, I'm very so happy you included the phrase blitheringly incompetent. Well, I did so uh, as a, a tribute to you. Thank you. Because you you asked for it. Uh. Oh, yeah. 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 That's why it's, it cuts back to that kind of solemn shot of Mary Jane. She's just watching helicopters fall out of the sky. <laughs> I'm also pretty sure that probably, particularly in early 2000, the airspace over New York City probably did not allow three or four helicopters to be darting in between buildings. Side by <laughs> side. Yeah, in formation, chasing a spider guy. Well, As a gen- it's funny you say that because I had a sudden realization halfway watching this movie in that I realized it's actually secretly said in the 1970s. Oh, oh, yeah. Well, I think 70s are being generous. Much more like the 60s. Late 60s, really. I mean, yeah. If it's a part of this... Given that astronaut Mike Dexter has walked on the moon and is only, like, 30 years old. <laughs> That's true, I yeah. Mean, that party he's, mm. they're at is incredibly 60s. And he did. we might as well just start off with opening mm. thoughts. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I texted all you guys earlier that... I'm not even sure what I'm going to say about this particular movie because I'm not sure I have any opinions that I didn't already apply to the first Spider-Man that don't apply to this one, just more so. The things I like, I still like, but more so because they're turned up to 11. The things I don't like, I still don't like, but more so because they're turned up to 11. And Mm. I know that I'm actually going to be an outlier because I'm certain what we're going to talk about, one thing we're going to talk about is the really, really terrible science yeah. That is one thing we're going to talk about, yes. I'm actually going to start out crazy. The bad science doesn't bother me because I realized halfway through the movie, this movie is basically just a 60s version of the Spider-Man comic book brought to life. It, it, I, it, I suppose if you're going to suspend your disbelief enough to believe that a man with spider powers can fight a man with giant mechanical arms, you might buy a son under the Hudson River. Well, my point <laughs> is is that... In those 60s comics, you know, science was almost laughably non-existent. You know, basically everyone well, in the Marvel Universe... Well, they hadn't universe... invented science yet, had they? No, no. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Everyone in the Marvel Universe gets their powers through some form of radiation, and it's at best vague-ish exactly what this radiation does. So if you take into... No, no, it's, no I, I would go the other way. It's incredibly specific what this radiation <laughs> does. Touché. <laughs> uh, but my point is, is that... If this is meant to be a 60s comic brought to life, the science doesn't bother me because they just don't give a damn. Mm. 
That's interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think All that's right. fair. I'm willing we'll, to, we'll come back. I'm willing we'll... to buy that, though. It suffers from the same problem that the first one did in that there's that weird mix of, like, really mopey sort of emo Spider-Man, I think is probably a term we're going to use a lot more for uh, the third movie, but it's very much evident here. So, like, pretty much anything involving Mary Jane and Peter and their complete lack of chemistry um, is obviously, like, super somber and mopey. Uh, but every so often you get a scene or a fight sequence where it's very obviously that you're watching uh, a Sam Raimi movie in kind of the yeah. evil dead way. Like, particularly, like, mm. the surgery scene where they're trying oh, yeah, to take yeah. the yeah. arms yeah. off yeah. of that. Which, yeah, when the arms come to life. When the arms come to life, there's even a guy who, like, tries to pick up a sa- chainsaw to save his life, yeah. and there's, like, a very Raimi shot of the chainsaw, like, coming to life. Uh, stuff yeah. like that. I feel like, again, just like in the first movie, if if Raimi just went full camp on this, and I think, I think then I would accept uh, the science a lot more, uh, and generally when he's sort of doing the, the campy exceptions to the rule in these movies, be it... Uh, Doc Ock surgery, or what was it, the World Unity Festival in the first movie. Those are the parts that I enjoy the most, where it just goes like, fuck it, fuck it, this is a silly thing we're doing, let's do it silly. Yeah, and Derek, opening thoughts. Yeah, I mean, one thing that kind of interests me is um, just like going back and I actually read some of the um, reviews for this film when it Mm. came out. This film was incredibly well critically received. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. It's, like, it's considered a modern classic. People fucking yeah. love this movie for some reason. Yeah. And, like, I remember, you know, when I saw it, um, you know, I would have been uh, 18. Um, I remember liking it and thinking, hey, that was a really great movie. Going back and watching it again, it's sort of like, what, what's the big deal? Like, I mean, yeah. it's, it's kind of hard. To, it's, not, it's not a bad movie by any means. Um, you know, and there are definitely good uh, and well done parts to it but the the kind of critical euphoria that you know seemed to have accompanied this film it's it's kind of hard to figure that out at least looking at it from 2014 i remember 10 years on i remember being mystified by it at the time i mean i saw i saw the first spider-man in theaters and i didn't hate it but i didn't love it i didn't bother seeing this one in theaters but i probably saw it like on hbo when it was playing a few Mm -hmm. months later I remember a lot of people at the time uh, were, like, listing it as, like, the best comic book movie that's been made so far. And mm-hmm. This is, like, really knocked out of the park. Mm-hmm. And I remember watching it going, like, what are they talking about? Yeah. yeah. So yeah, I, was, I, I was mystified by it at the time, and I certainly don't right. think, I certainly don't think that it's aged well. I think part of our, part of our work tonight is going to be to try to, to, uh, to unpack that puzzle. Mm-hmm. And try to figure out why it was so widely acclaimed in its time. Well, I mean, yeah. just speaking I, for myself, I have the same thing where I remembered this movie being really, really great. I remembered loving this movie a lot. And then when we started coming back to the Spider-Mans for this project, I was very surprised how differently I viewed it now. Because back then, I would have actually been one of those people that said it was the greatest superhero movie that had been yet made. And so I am a little interested to know why, how, how that change happened because it has not been that long. Mm-hmm. Dude, but opening thoughts. It hasn't been that long, but we've had a lot of superhero movies since then, and our and entire view of what a superhero movie can be has changed. Uh, at the time, I mean, what did we have that was new? Uh, Batman Begins wasn't out yet. Uh, it's true. 
Uh, I don't know. Yeah, um, I mean, really, yeah, right. what, what could you compare it to? I mean, the... X, X2 and the Donner, the first Donner Superman film, and then the Burton Schumacher Batman series. Yeah. And Blade 2, I remember a lot of people really liking Blade 2 at the time as yeah. well. Yeah. Uh, and I will maintain, uh, probably until my grave, that uh, the 1991 Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles film is the greatest comic book film of all time. It's a real good comic book film. Timely <laughs> <laughs> uh, that reference. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, as far as my opening thoughts, I feel very similarly to Patrick, except that I did... I liked this movie for about two days when I first saw it. Uh, I enjoyed it as I walked out of the theater, and... Then I really started to think about the dialogue, and I just remember that that Mary Jane line about having always been outside his door was mm. it's just it's, it's there's just a lot of really bad dialogue in this. Uh, yeah, I think I we know. can agree that these would be much better movies without Spider Man and Mary Jane. Like if they had made a, <laughs> if they had made this movie without either of those characters, things would be so much better. Because then you would just have movies where James Franco and Willem Dafoe and Alfred Molina are just being ridiculous. It would be incredible. Yeah. And, it, it and Bruce would Campbell would show up every so often for a minute or two of screen time. They'd be great movies. Um, it's funny, though, because watching this one, I really, like, remember, or, I don't know, I got a sense of, I, I don't remember thinking about this specifically in the first film, but that Spider-Man is, is the character who's most like, who I see myself as most like, in that he mm-hmm. is a a good-hearted person who's trying to do the right thing, but just constantly fumbles over himself. Uh, he just he can't get it all together. Uh, and if I go back and listen to the first podcast, I probably said the exact same thing during that one, but I don't remember saying it, so I'll say it again. Uh, uh, You're proving your own point. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> uh, so yeah, at least in the first act, it was like, okay, I can identify with this guy. He's, he's really giving it his all, yeah. and he just fails... Constantly. <laughs> Stick a pin in that, that feeling that you're having because I'm going to circle back to it in my closing thoughts. Because yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that's a fairly common uh, sort of perspective on Spider Man. I think that's part yeah. of sort of his popularity is that he's sort of, yeah. in a lot of ways, the most relatable. And probably also why he's so yeah. popular with children is, is that he yeah. is sort of the most relatable. He's, yeah. he's not that far removed from their own experiences, unlike, you know. The X Men, yeah, Superman, or Batman. Not, not many of us can identify with the uh, the billionaire uh, martial artist or the oh, orphan. Uh, the, the invincible yeah. alien. <laughs> oh, or the so green may, may, maybe maybe you can. <laughs> um, no, so here here's the thing. Um, as as a general statement, you know, I, I I'm kind of in Dude's camp. I remember liking this for about two days, and then being like, "What the <laughs> fuck did I just watch?" And watching it this time around, I was much more aware of some of the issues with the film, the dialogue being one. But the the big thing is, you know, okay, so we have Peter Parker. And Peter Parker is a, uh, you know, he's a hard luck guy. Like, things go bad for Peter Parker. Okay. Like when Spider-Man stole his pizzas. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, you know, bad things happen to Peter Parker. I, I, I can accept that. But there is a difference between being kind of like a hard luck guy and being a loser. And Sam Raimi's interpretation of Peter Parker is that Peter Parker is a fucking loser. Like, he he's not a kid who has bad luck. He's the kind of kid that, like, he's lucky if he puts his pants on the right way in the morning. Yes. Like... 
can can you define what you think of as a loser? Because I think of someone who like just doesn't try. But I feel like Peter Parker tries all the time. But but like he's it's not just that he is not in control of the things around him. Yeah. He does an incredibly poor job of controlling the things that are in him yeah. and then he mopes about okay, it for a enough. long time. Yeah. I would say that for me, it's also the sheer amount of things that go wrong for him, combined with the fact that I I don't know if the realistically is the right word, but on some level, I feel like he should be able to at least get a handful of these under control. Yes. Yeah. It's, well, he he has very. Uh, God, but he also yeah. what what I what I find incredibly frustrating is not only does everything go poorly for him, but he's incapable of explaining himself to anybody. The thing that I found the most frustrating throughout this entire thing uh, is the sort of romantic comedy misunderstanding that's happening between uh, Mary Jane and Peter. So she's in this play, and he promises that he's going to come see her her at this uh, performance. And he doesn't show up, and that's sort of the crux of a lot of sort of the the sort of distrust that Mary Jane... Of her getting engaged Mm -hmm. to another man. But... But the reason he doesn't go there is that while he's going there on his little moped scooter, a there's a police chase going going on behind him, and the cop car hits his moped. The only reason he survives is that he's Spider-Man. He does like a cool backflip, but he has a completely totaled scooter. He has been in a life-threatening accident. He could very easily say, "I was on the way to the the theater, and the cops ran my car, my scooter down." He could just. And here's my scooter. Is exactly. There's probably a police report about this. He's in the newspaper for this, probably, and he never bothers to explain himself. He never goes, and there's no sort of like or the thing with the pizza at the beginning. It's not. He's just a fuck up. It's not that the woman who was accepting the pizzas was an incredible bitch for actually enforcing their stupid thirty minutes or less policy because he got there with thirty minutes and thirty seconds. It's a psychopathic policy. I, I, I will also say he, he's uh, the the pizza delivery guy tells him that like he has to go something like forty blocks in New York to deliver pizzas in eight minutes. Yeah. It's impossible to go forty blocks in New York in like an hour. Well, it also asks the question: Does is Peter Asif Madvi's only yeah. driver? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yes. Uh, also, that pizza place is very clearly sponsored by Dr Pepper. There are about eight different things of Dr. Pepper. Like, the entire time, like, Asif Manvi is chewing them out, and they pass by, like, three different coolers of Dr. Pepper, and right behind Peter, while he's being chewed out, this guy very ostentatiously drinks from a cup that's perfectly positioned to say, Dr. Pepper! And I think I think part of the problem with the, the whole first act, and I guess even some of the second act of the film, is that, yeah, Peter's a giant fuck-up, and... The ostensible reason that he is, you know, just fucking up all the time is that he's a superhero and he's Spider-Man and he's kind of doing his real job on the side. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But we don't really see much of that, right? I mean, the no. first scene of him being Spider-Man is is that, like, pizza scene and it's played for laughs, but it doesn't give us a sense of, like, the stakes that, you know, his, his mm-hmm. fuck-uppery is actually worth something. That, you know, he is giving something yeah. of himself, of his personal... Um, of his personal life and his like academic success to, um, yeah. to actually like save he could, like well, he could have been given like fairly reasonable conditions to get that pizza yes, over he there, and he kids. and he was late because he saved some person's life. 
It, it, but it's just kind of like he was given impossible conditions and he does some crazy, crazy Spider-Man shit, uh, and it still isn't good enough. Partially because he spent so much time with that fucking, uh, fucking, uh, closet full of cleaning supplies. If he hadn't bothered with that, if he just said, fuck it, I'll get to that in 30 seconds. Yeah. That lady would have had nothing. She would have had to accept those goddamn pizzas. Yeah, I mean, because Spider-Man would have been delivering it. I think part of the Sorry, go ahead, dude. Uh, the, uh, the part that frustrated me the most is that he won't clear up the miscommunication with Harry about the death of his father, which is the same thing that that we're talking about here. But I think there is a legitimate reason for why he does not clear up these miscommunications. And it's it becomes explicit when he explains to Aunt May exactly how Uncle Ben died. Like, he really believes that he is responsible for all of these things. He knows that he's not responsible for the death of uh, Norman Osborn, but he feels like he is. Because but he, he kind couldn't of save is. him. But he's more directly responsible for that death than he is for Uncle Ben. No, he's not, because... Uh, it, Norman Osborn went crazy, and then, while trying to kill Spider-Man with his own uh, glider, killed himself. All Spider-Man did was jump over it. Exactly! Exactly! If he had not jumped out of the way of that glider, Spider-Man would be dead and Norman Osborn would be alive. He murdered Harry! Or Norman! (laughs) Somebody! uh, And the, the miscommunications that he doesn't clear up with Mary Jane are because... Regardless of whether he can make it to the play or not, he doesn't feel like he deserves to be with her because he can't devote himself to her. He has other responsibilities. It's it's not that, I, and I think this is where all of his clumsiness comes from too. Is that he really believes he's not capable of doing things correctly, so he he isn't capable of it. Uh, it's the same it, reason that he loses so his mojo. Prophecy. And that gets to an interesting point because, like you know, Stefan, you, you know, you, you sort of described uh, the di- the distinction between like a hard luck case and a loser. Um, yep. That's sort of like, yeah, I mean, movie audiences won't accept a loser, right? They can, yeah. they accept sure. hard luck cases because of some kind of melodramatic circumstance, right? That's how melodrama works. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, there, there's a kind of outside circumstance that, you know, causes you to be too late or, you know, you run out of time or, you know, there, it's just something that you can't help. Mm-hmm. And that sense of powerlessness is sort of what creates pathos from for the character. Whereas here, mm-hmm. it, all of that like all of that in, inhibition is like coming internally, right? It's it's something that seems yeah. sort of innate to the character, um, and so we're we're just kind of left with no, come on, do better, you know. There's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I, I think that's true, and, and I think that. I mean, we can say like, "Oh, well, th- this kind of stuff could never work with a film with a, a film audience. Like, audiences would never accept this." Clearly, audiences did. Yeah, yeah, people but, but yeah, but it's <sighs> so much of the plot of this film boils down to either. Characters who do not take actions that they are strongly incentivized internally and externally to take, or pure coincidence. Yes, there's a lot. Yeah. There's a lot of pure coincidence. And, and and just just so we get this out of the way up front, the screenwriter of this film was Alvin Sargent, a two-time Oscar-winning screenwriter. And uh, Michael, I don't, I don't know how to pronounce his Shaban. name. Shaban. Shaban, yeah. Uh, the best-selling novelist uh, is one of the, is the third guy credited with the screenplay. But how is his name yep. pronounced? Um, I always thought it was Shaban. It could be Shaban. Uh, we talked about this Shabon, in Hulk, I think. but please Shabon? note oh. that those screenplay credits are not the ampersand. <laughs> They're the and. Yeah. yeah. 
that's where yeah, things tend to get okay, in trouble. That's true. Yeah. Um, but it's uh, it's interesting to me that uh, Derek, when we watched the first film, you you complimented it for the David Kep screenplay, which was very structured, um, you know, somewhat formulaic but tight. Mm-hmm. It was a tight screenplay, and this is not a tight screenplay at all. Mm. Okay, yeah, yeah. I, the first one was really tight. I'm not sure if it's well. How are we defining tight? Um, cer- like certainly, I think the first act seems like it drags because yeah. you know mostly because of the you know protagonist problems that we've been talking about. Mm-hmm. But I feel like the rest of the film moves along at a pretty pretty nice pace. Um, how are, uh, I think how are the, yeah. I think the pace is okay. I think what what bugged me is in addition to the fact that a large portion of the film was motivated by coincidence. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, ostensibly, the, the plot of the film is Dr. Octopus is trying to construct a second sun-making machine. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Or at least his arms are. Yeah, yeah. For reasons. For reasons. I have a quote I'm supposed um, to read off when we get to that. But okay. the... Um, the ways that that intersects with Peter's problems and Peter's arc are completely incidental. Like mm-hmm. Peter has no idea that this thing is being constructed until the exact moment that it poses some kind of threat. Mm-hmm. And the reason that it poses some kind of threat is not tied to anything involved with the journey that Peter's been on. Like it's just we well, get to the we get to the final act of the film. Shit, we need something that's going to blow something yeah. up. So there are problems with motivation. I, I would define a yeah. screenplay as tight in that you never wonder why you're watching any of it. Like, there's never any question oh, yeah, of the there parts was... being connected to each other okay. and moving. And in this... There was a lot of that questioning going on during this film. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like, Dr. Octopus is, like, so incidental to everything Peter's doing that when he finally gets around, you almost kind of go, oh, that's right. He's here. Yeah. He just yeah. kind of keeps oh, yeah, showing up yeah, occasionally. There was a long time when Doc Ock was not around. Also, I wasn't assuming that, that it was a coincidence that Doc Ock just happened to find Peter Parker and Mary Jane in that uh, coffee shop. I was assuming that he went block by block through the entirety <laughs> of New York City, all five boroughs, and was throwing cars from hundreds of yards away through literally every storefront window. <laughs> hoping, that was- hoping, that, hoping that Peter Parker, not Spider-Man, would be able yeah. to dodge said cars. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, this is the punishment. That's a great point! Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, well, that kind of to me that kind of harkens back to the whole this is a '60s comic book kind of thing because that's the exact kind of thing that would happen in a '60s comic book. Like, but you can't you can't use the oh it's a '60s I, comic book thing as an excuse in 2004. I'm not. I'm not using it as an excuse. Do not mistake what I'm saying. I'm explaining that this tone. <laughs> that's excuse. That's what I'm Sam Raimi said too. This this tone is not work in terms of modern day and this is again we'll circle back to this at the end this has always been one of my problems with spider-man but that's why a lot of this movie is the way it is i think is that there's a lot of stuff that if you look at it in terms of i'm reading a 1960s comic book you're like oh so that's why he did it that way and that's that's why i think he did Mm -hmm. this particular thing with the car going through the window this way yeah Mm -hmm. he's he's clearly going for a tone Mm -hmm. that is is i think a little inconsistent throughout the film 
Uh, mm-hmm. And I, I imagine Nick would argue becomes more consistent throughout Spider-Man Three, but uh, I will argue I, that I will absolutely. <laughs> spoiler alert! I will argue that Spider-Man Three is fantastic because it finally embraces the campiness that these movies yeah. hint at but never fulfill. And to be fair, I do think that some of the best moments in this film were the the comic relief. He stole that guy's pizzas! Yeah, or he's in the elevator with uh, with that guy. That guy from uh, VH1! Sure, yes. Uh, uh, or the two-year-old child saving his life? That yeah, I thought not, was genuinely was hilarious. I thought that was yeah. actually really good, because I, I felt like that was a natural kind of human th- thing. Particularly, I liked that he was able to save someone in a building burning as himself, instead of as Spider-Man, even though it was the pretty much a repeat of the scenario from the first film, but it, this one wasn't a trap and there really was a child stuck in the building. Yeah. Oh, um, yeah, you're right. Uh, but, you know, it's, I, someone's helping But why does you, that two-year-old child help. have the strength to pull him up? It, she oh, doesn't. Oh, what a twist. her trying is what gives him the strength to pull himself up. Uh, like, I, you know, I, I it, just, it's someone trying to help him and him realizing that he is worth helping. Is that the, is that also, the only time in the movie that he just randomly... S- help somebody not related to, you know, Doc Ock? It's, it's not He tells those kids to eat their vegetables. He, uh, he randomly does not help someone in the alley who's being mugged and beaten up yeah, by two exactly. guys when he would not have needed to do it as Spider-Man. No. He could have just run over and scared them away. Or alerted a police officer or something. <laughs> he just, like, yeah, he decides he's not Spider-Man, and he sees a man being viciously beaten, and he's like, well, I'm not Spider-Man, yes. not my problem. Like... Yeah. There's a there's a middle ground here, Peter. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. it's nice to know that Peter learned none of the lessons from the first film, where if you beat up one New Yorker, you beat up all New Yorkers. <laughs> hey guys, that's it for this week on Cinema Excelsior. We'll be back next week with part of our analysis of Spider-Man 2. If you like what you've heard, please rate us on iTunes and recommend us on Facebook. Thanks very much. Excelsior!